Good evening. I bring you greetings from Antigua and Barbuda. I just met a couple, a family. Well, they were a couple then. They honeymooned in Antigua, they said, several years ago. I, I, I didn't think coming to Grand Rapids I'd meet somebody from, who had been to Antigua. But, but uh, it's been a joy being here, and uh, I'm so happy and uh, honored that Dr. Beakey and this great seminary have invited me to this pulpit. My assigned subject, the maturation of grace, sanctification, and uh, my text is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Please stand with me as I read uh, the inspired and unadulterated word of Almighty God. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us tonight to love what you love and hate what you hate. Help us to prize your well done above all accolades of this world. Father, as we listen to your inspired and infallible word expounded, use it tonight to conform us to the image of your dear Son. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not make us, we pray in the name of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, how often have we repented of some sin with the sincere resolve that the matter is over and dead? We were confident that we would not return. We reason that we've learned our lesson and have suffered enough. However, <laughs> we shamefully return to committing the same sin again. It was not over and dead after all. We feel like hypocrites. We, we know we are hypocrites. <laughs> but this is not what we want. We ask, what am, am I missing? I know that I, I am saved, so, so what's going on? Am I supposed to hate this? It seems I don't hate it, or at least I don't hate it enough. <laughs> Am I even saved? What's wrong with me? Help! 
Well, we are right about one thing. Something is radically wrong. We either do not understand repentance or we do not have a clue about pulling it off. Our so-called repentance is defective. Well, what now? The great Martin Luther maintained that all of life is repentance for the Christian. This concept is not appreciated for the most part by many professing Christians today. Many seem to believe that practically repentance is something necessary for egregious violations. That it is something for when we have done something majorly wrong, horrendous, or notoriously wicked. This erroneous idea is that ordinarily Christians are supposed to walk, if they're doing it right, in consistent obedience, always having victory over sin and troubles, constantly rising above things, never letting anything get to them, and always rejoicing in the Lord. Thus, according to this perspective, there is no need for continuing repentance. This view would hold that those constantly repenting are probably not genuine believers in Christ, for they have, there is too much sin in their lives. If we are honest, we will admit that we are not one of those who scarcely need repentance. We will acknowledge that we are embarrassed that we are constantly in need of repentance, that we have often and repeatedly and sincerely sought repentance and have returned to the sin far too quickly and consistently. Sometimes the agony of doubting the reality of our regeneration is constant. And so is the stinging indictment of recurring hypocrisy. Even though there may be no open scandal, we know viscerally that our thoughts, words, and deeds have been scandalous. Listen, let's get to the heart of the matter. Suppose we understand the gospel message that Jesus Christ has covered our sins, that he is our savior, and that God does not accept us because of our efforts, but because of what Jesus has done. In that case we will finally be able to relax, not in a pretentious moral perfection or a wicked moral indifference. We rest in the perfect obedience of Christ. We are accepted in him. We are loved in him. If we truly understand that, when we see all the sins that we have struggled with for years, we will rejoice that we have been we, we, we have the best spiritual insurance that ever existed, the active and passive obedience of Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ's life is imputed to our account. And the blood of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world, imputes all our depravity to the account of Christ. Like the woman who kissed our Lord's feet, we have been forgiven much, so we love much. Our repentance will be so deep that it releases joy and love. We are compelled to kiss the sun. We must pour our expensive perfume on Christ, for he is worthy. Hallelujah. On the other hand, <laughs> let us suppose that we do not rest our life on the gospel. If we are outwardly moral and religious people, but do not rest our life on the gospel, trouble is inevitable. This is because our discovery 
of our sin and any finding of our weakness is always going to lead us to despair. Our repentance will prove to be defective. If it is all up to us, our failure will hit us harder and harder. It will continue to drive us to despair because we rely not on the Lord Jesus Christ for our sense of identity, significance, or security, but on our own power and ability to be consistent. If we're like that, any discovery of our sin and any finding of our weakness will crush us to despair. Repentance is effective and leads to despair if we do not indeed and sincerely understand the gospel. On the other hand, repentance leads to joy and love and a burst of energy and growth if, if, we, if we truly get the message of the gospel because biblical repentance leads to a greater appreciation, gratitude, and thrill at what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Without this dynamic, we will not grow we will not mature in Christ. Beloved, if any of us find that looking at our sins and getting a more profound knowledge of them leads to utter despair, then it is appropriate to ask ourselves to explain the basis of our belief that God loves us. What is the foundation of our standing with him? Is it our effort? Is it our moral excellence? If so, the need for repentance will push us down. On the other hand, if the Lord Jesus Christ is truly our Savior, repentance begins a cycle of victory and maturation. We all must urgently get a biblical understanding of genuine repentance. We will always miss the point if we do not see our sins as expressions of idolatry. Many of us have been thinking of repentance as just basically stopping certain kinds of external behavioral sins. However, as we examine Holy Scripture, we will see that the things the Bible talks about, such as greed or sexual immorality and so on, are idols. They are idols. For example, covetousness or greed is called an idol in our text. An idol is something from which we get our identity, our significance, and our security. It is a thing for which we get up in the morning. It is our main preoccupation. Does the God of the Bible want us to make him our main preoccupation? You better believe it. If anything else dominates your thinking, dominates your conversation, dominates your life, that is your God. Because the God of the Bible will not tolerate any competitors. We all have some things that we have presented at some point as our identities. <laughs> In some cases, it might be relationships. <laughs> In some cases, it might be financial security or independence. In some cases, it might be some kind of achievement or status. It is generally different for, for everybody. Uh, to be clear, when we speak of our identity, we are talking about the things we see as essential to our existence. We cannot see how we will function without them. 
That is precisely what an idol is. It is making something else besides the God of the Bible, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, as the focus of our lives. If our repentance does not process this, it is defective. Listen. The only way we can tell if something has been raised to the frightening level of idolatry in our lives is when God takes it away from us. And, and then life as we know it is shut down. <laughs> when, when, when we do not have access to that thing, it is then that we begin to realize what has been running our lives all along. <laughs> to speak of identity is to use the language of popular counseling. Even better language, <laughs> the language of scripture, is that the idols are the things we use to create our righteousness. The things we use to create our righteousness. From God's point of view, what we have done is simply to patch up a righteousness of our own. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Philippians 3, talks about himself like this. He wrote in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 9, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, in Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own, my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, the apostle was clearly saying that he is giving us a list of all the things that used to be his righteousness. He was saying, in effect, look at my pedigree. Look, look at my family background. Look at my career accomplishments. Look at my intellectual attainments. However, since the Lord Jesus arrested me, I count them all a loss. What he means is that they used to be my righteousness. They were the things I relied on and said, this is my honor, this is my glory, this is my dignity. The apostle was making it abundantly clear that biblical Christianity requires that we give up on anything that resembles self-made righteousness. Like the apostle, we must count such things as rubbish. We're discreet in using the term rubbish, for we, the Bible just said dung. <laughs> this is precisely what self-made righteousness amounts to in the eyes of a holy God. We must take the vestiges of the old man in us, the remnants of our sin-dominated past. Every... <laughs> well... We must take it all very seriously if we are to mortify them. True believers in Christ have sufficient corruption in them <laughs> well, to put them on a treadmill of, 
of defective repentance and retarded maturation. When we become Christian, our faith affirmation is that we know that God accepts us only because of the righteousness of Christ. This is the essence of the gospel. However, there is a competition going on inside of us. The old man in us is constantly challenging the new man in us. The new man in us acknowledges that we are accepted only in Christ and that Christ alone is our righteousness. Christ is our honor. Christ is our glory. On the other hand, we have the old man who answers, are you kidding? Of course we must trust Christ, but we need some credentials of our own. After all, but for a few minor errors in our lives, for the most part, we are pretty good people, aren't we? Listen, folks, the more we understand the gospel, the more we have to tone down the rhetoric of boasting and the language of achievement. Our God has a way of bursting our pretentious bubble of moral consistency by permitting some massive failure in our lives that we cannot hide or explain away. We just have to hang our heads in shame and embarrassment for trusting in our own righteousness. It is only then that we can admit that our repentance was defective, that we should have been trusting only in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Anything else is just plain childish. We will never be spiritually upright because of what we have done or achieved. Only the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf will be efficacious. Listen, folks. The best thing that, well, the best thing we can do right now for our sanctification is to identify those things that we have been boasting about quickly. The things that we think have made us unique. The same things that have nothing to do with the work of Christ to save us. When we have identified them, we must kill them. We must remove them from the place of prominence in our lives. Minimize them, move them, mortify them, marginalize them, get rid of them. You know, this is not difficult to understand. If there is something that is consuming all of our energy and resources, something that is draining us emotionally and relationally, and this thing has nothing to do with the work of Christ on our behalf, it simply has to go. It has to go. That's all there is to it. It has to go. It must be destroyed. If we do not destroy it promptly, it will ultimately destroy us, proving our profession to be false. Our idols must be broken to pieces. If this, is not, if, if this does not happen, our repentance will prove defective and lacking efficacy. And maturation will be retarded or non-existent. Beloved, this is precisely what the Bible speaks of when we are admonished to mortify the flesh. When the Bible says kill the flesh or war against the flesh, it is not always talking about our bodies, of course. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it will sometimes say these are the works of the flesh. And then things are listed like envy and pride which have nothing to do with the body. The word flesh is not a bodily thing necessarily. Usually when the Bible talks about the flesh versus the spirit, the flesh is itself. 
It is the old man of whom we spoke earlier. It is the side of us that still wants to go about making its own righteousness, wanting to live for its own glory. This is the part of us always trying to boast about something other than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can testify that this, the single most significant and most shocking discovery of my life has been the capacity of true believers, including myself, the capacity of true believers to occasionally and dangerously take brief excursions into fleshly pursuits to their shame. <laughs> it's hard to talk about it, but we must talk about it. Are we ready to be honest? <laughs> we will know that we are taking a fleshly excursion when we still need to dominate every discussion. We will know that we are taking a fleshly excursion when we feel that we must carnally defend ourselves at all times, we can't leave it to Christ. We will know that we have taken a fleshly excursion when we cannot give with joy. It's a painful thing to help others and support the church. We will know that we have taken a fleshly excursion when we need the validation of persons who have nothing to do with Christ. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we need to be in with the times and trendy, even when what's in is ridiculous and sinful. <laughs> we will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we subtly promote worldliness under the cover of religion so that whatever the world is doing motivates us to invent a Christian version. <laughs> we will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when we use the truth of God's word not to enlighten others and promote grace, but to intimidate and humiliate those enslaved by sin. <laughs> we will know <laughs> that we have taken a fleshly excursion when we see doctrine as only valuable for winning debates, not as food for our hungry and thirsty souls. We will know we have taken a fleshly excursion when our mission in life is to spread gossip, not the gospel. We have high energy for tail-bearing and low energy for gospel witness. Listen, folks. If any among us do not believe this applies to them, why don't they give themselves a little test? Uh, this conference is sponsored by an academic institution. That's what happens there. Tests are administered, correct? Yes, you give tests. Here, here's a little test. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> this week, we need to make sure that in our lives, there is no gossip about anyone, no bragging about our lives, and no carnal defending of ourselves when attacked. <laughs> Can you manage this challenge? Someone is probably panicking, thinking, what in the world am I going to do with my time? Just imagine that, wow, no gossip, no bragging, and no carnal defense of myself. <laughs> Listen, folks, our lives are fleshly when we cannot do what is right on these matters. Many are convinced that they must destroy others they think have wronged them. They cannot bring themselves to graciously facilitate repentance or even exoneration, wherever the facts lead. They, they cannot facilitate that with the offender and ultimately uh, that person's rehabilitation. That's not the agenda. They wronged me. 
Do you know what they did to me? We are fleshly when we cannot give God the glory for the blessings he has placed in our lives. We brag so easily. We are regularly engaged in cosmic plagiarism, taking credit for God's work in our lives. We need to give him glory. We are fleshly when we cannot let God fight our battles. We often insist on taking matters into our own hands with sinful and carnal initiatives, hoping that the end justifies the means. Beloved, our goal here is not necessarily to make anybody feel miserable. We want to facilitate in some small way a move from defective repentance to biblical repentance and maturation. We aim to be very specific concerning what needs to be done. So, this holy passage challenges us in at least two ways. Hmm? One, we must correctly label our malady. And two, we must conspicuously lean on our Messiah. One, correctly label our malady. Two, conspicuously lean on our Messiah. So let's go. Number one. Now, when I come this far and go number one, you're thinking... I know, I know my time. <laughs> Number one, correctly labeling our malady. I'm basing this on verses 5 through 8. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which he also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now... You put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, the correct labeling of the problems that we face, the sinful problems that we face, is half the battle. Taxonomy is indispensable to life, even in spiritual things. The Apostle Paul helps us greatly towards this end in these verses by chronicling this catalog of sin, which is not an exhaustive list. We must understand that the only way that the flesh can completely overwhelm and dominate our lives is if we are not aware of it at all. We, we have to correctly name it to identify it and call it out, even in prayer. We are in danger if we have no idea what the flesh is and how it attacks in battle, for example, if the enemy is entirely unknown to us, where we don't know its location or cannot track its mobility, we will be annihilated. If, on the other hand, we can spot the enemy's movements, then we'll have a big fight. We might still lose a battle on a given day, but at least we will have a fighting chance to win the war. We must be able to see the flesh and name it in our lives. Name it. Sometimes we are so sensitive and defensive that we can't grow. We're so busy justifying ourselves that we cannot see that this justification is also a manifestation of the flesh. Without a teachable spirit, without discernment, we will not move. We will not progress spiritually. Please do not imagine 
that many years in the faith equals spiritual growth, for it is possible to have one year of immaturity repeated year after year. Any of us could be 15 years in the church with the maturity of a one-year-old believer. Our flesh will completely dominate us if we cannot see its approach. The flesh is approaching if we need to control everyone around us when God has not given us any legitimate authority over them. The flesh is approaching if we are extremely sensitive to what people think of us to the point that we constantly get our feelings hurt. The flesh is approaching if we are never aware of our pride and how our pride is shaped. When we begin to see the flesh for what it is, it no longer can ambush us the same way. We may fall prey to it on a given day, in a given week, but if we can name it and see it, we have a fighting chance against it. I know this whole world is into renaming everything to make it more palatable. You know, listen, folks, if we are fully aware of the approach and methods of a particular fleshly attack in our lives, if we can see it when it is coming, it is not proper to say that we are under its domination and control. This is because seeing it is half the fight. You have to name things. Every field, every discipline is into naming things. You have to do it. Call things what God calls them. If they are foul, you must smell it. I'm afraid that uh, our noses spiritually have become defective. Hmm? If you live near to a pig pen for a very long time, you, your visitors from another country will come and they will say, mm, what's that? And you'll be saying, what? What? Because you've grown accustomed to it. I hope you know we're living in Sodom in the West. Sodom and Gomorrah. What's really threatening is if we can't smell it anymore. <laughs> oh, yes. Seeing it is half the fight. The people who do not stand the chance of victory over the flesh are the people who are in denial and who cannot see it and will not name it. They either have not named it or they may have mislabeled it. This does not mean that if we see it coming, we will always defeat it. However, by not seeing it, we are positioned for disaster. Listen, folks, I know it is frustrating and sometimes discouraging to be constantly battered by fleshly concerns. We should not be saddened when our Lord has opened our eyes to what is happening. We've already basically engaged it. The most important part of the battle is over if we see what is going on and have named it. We are on a trajectory to victory if we are awake. If the enemy is after us and we are asleep, there won't even be a battle. We'll be dead. But if we are awake, at least there will be a battle. If we feel the fight inside of us, that is a sign of spiritual life. 
And it is a, a sign of growth. And it is a sign that God is working with us. The only people completely losing are those with no struggle in their life. There is no grace in them or around them to resist temptation or repent of a transgression. So, if we can see the worst in us and hate it, we are alive. <laughs> if we are driven to our knees constantly for mercy and grace to help in the time of need, we are alive. If we are, are constantly searching the word of God for insights for beating the sin that so easily besets us, we are alive. If we are more and more distrustful of our feelings and our own strength, folks, we are alive. If we are increasingly convinced of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, we are alive. If, if we can passionately passionately celebrate the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf. Folks, we are alive. With proper labeling of the sin, it is unmasked. Unmasking it helps us stop the silly rationalizations we concoct. It helps us stop all the lovely names we invent for our loathsome sins. To make them easier to swallow, of course. If we do not get the grace to call the sin precisely what it is, call it exactly what God calls it, exposing our habitual idolatry, it will soon consume us. Listen, folks, mortification is a ruthless business. It gets real. For example, we need to stop saying that our feelings get hurt pretty easily. Listen, folks, if you are saying that, you're bitter. You're a bitter person. We need to stop, for example, we need to stop describing our attitude as heightened concern. Really? That's evidence that we're eaten up with anxiety. Let's speak the truth. We need to stop describing our relationship with someone as intense dislike. Come on. We hate them. We need to stop talk, talking about working on making peace with our God. Listen, just surrender, submit, stop the nonsense, submit. That takes me to my second point. I told you, you could trust me with that. Number two, conspicuously lean on our Messiah. Conspicuously lean on our Messiah. Look at verses 9 to 11. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, city, and bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, having labeled our sin correctly, the next step is for us to deliberately and conspicuously stand with the person and work of Christ. Christ is all and in all. A casual and indifferent association will not cut it. 
deliberate and intentional dependence on Christ's righteousness is how the maturation process flows unimpeded. This is how we destroy the power of sin in our lives. This is, by the way, this is precisely what we forget when we go on a sinful excursion. To experience victory, we must divest ourselves of our idols and stake everything on the active and passive obedience of Christ. Everything. <laughs> it's like a gambler saying, give me all my chips, I'm putting them here. <laughs> but this, we don't call it gambling, do we? We call it faith. Huh? <laughs> we are staking everything on Christ. This means we will not join the cultural crowning and coronation of the self. Our help comes from Christ's righteousness and atonement, not our achievement. We must make Christ the focus of everything and, and take our sin to Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Listen, folks. If we take a sinful indulgence to Mount Sinai, what we're doing is that we're only thinking about its danger. We're only worried about painful consequences. We are only focused on how the idolatrous excursion has messed up our lives. Our focus is on all the punishments that will probably come down on us because of our grave error of judgment. This is not biblical repentance. This is self-pity. <laughs> this is why our so-called repentance must be called defective. Self-pity and repentance are two different things. Self-pity is thinking about what a mess our sin has gotten us into. This must be put off. Self-pity is thinking about its consequences. What a wreck it has made of us. How God will probably get us for it. And all the problems it will create in our lives or have already begun. So, so we start to cry. Oh, Lord, I am so sorry that this has happened. Oh, Lord, please stop the pain. It hurts too much. I promise I've learned my lesson. <laughs> we're saying, in effect, I hate the consequences of this sin. But we're not talking about hating the sin. Our repentance is effective and our maturation is retarded. Instead of hating the sin, we are merely hating the consequences of the sin and hating ourselves for being so stupid to fall for it. This is not biblical repentance. With the defective repentance of self-pity, we will continue to love our sin. <laughs> and the sin will continue to have power over us while we continue to hate ourselves. Genuine repentance, biblical repentance, will ask a different kind of question. It will ask, what has my sin done to my God? What has my sin cost my God? How does my sin grieve my God? What does God feel about it? Stephen Sharnock understood it very well. He wrote, a legal conviction arises from a consideration of God's justice, an evangelical conviction from a sense of God's goodness. Let me explain. <laughs> it is one thing to be chastised by a whipping 
You still do that up here? Do, do people get whippings? I, I hope so. I'm the man I am today because I got a lot of them. Mm. But it is one thing to be chastised by a whipping and another thing to be chastised by weeping. Hmm. I got a lot of whippings. And sometimes I, well, he wasn't balanced out. My wife tells me that she didn't get a lot of whippings, but, but her... She was raised by an aunt who would just cry. When they misbehaved, she would just cry and they would all just behave. <laughs> As a parent, which would you prefer? Your children doing what is right because they are afraid to feel your whip or your children doing what is right because they are afraid to break your heart? The chastisement with the most significant impact is not the whipping. It's the weeping. Please do not miss the point. Corporal punishment is a crucial and indispensable tool in the training of young people. <laughs> the whip is essential for the containment of evil when there is no rational or conscientious appreciation of the precepts of God. It is a vital tool for the restraint of the immature. And thank God I got the whippings. I was more afraid of my father than any policeman, teacher, or anybody in the world. I just walked around with him in my head. <laughs> The other kids will be saying, let's go, let's do it. I'm thinking, oh, no, no, no. Uh, my dad is bound to find out. Mm. So whippings are very helpful, very useful. <laughs> but trust me, <laughs> when people that we love, I I'm in the ministry today because of tears. I remember my dad, who was a nominal Anglican, trying to stop me from the ministry. He noticed my gravitation to my pastor's theological library and uh, my constant fascination with the scriptures and the church. And he pulled me over one afternoon behind the house sitting on the coconut tree. He said, come and sit here. You are not going to be a pastor. I didn't put you through school for that. You're going to be a lawyer. Well, he lost that fight. He lost that fight. My baby sister became the lawyer, though that mitigated things somewhat. But I remember going to university in Oklahoma, finishing um, a theology degree, and uh, then started to say, you know, maybe my dad was right. One of my best friends said, Hensworth, I'm not going to seminary. I'm, I'm going to law school. And he eventually became a judge in Texas. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I think I will enroll in law school at the University of Oklahoma. Got in. And I had a preaching engagement um, in a little town north of Tulsa uh, at a family's house that, that made, made me their son, their, their Antiguan son. So I would go there every time I needed a little break, and I went up and I told this lady, you know, I'm, I, think I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm going to law school at Norman, Oklahoma, and she, she started to cry. <laughs> started to cry, I said, what, what, what did I say? 
She said, Hensworth, you really think this world needs another lawyer? She says, ever since I heard you, one of the most anointed young preachers I've heard, you can't do this. I couldn't sleep for days. Those tears work. <laughs> Please do not miss the point. How do we know that we are growing up spiritually? We know it when our motivation for obedience is not merely the fear of punishment, but a love for purity. Godly parents know that the efforts at child-rearing have been met with some semblance of success. If the children are not merely concerned to obey what they are told is right, but they have grown to love what is right genuinely. We know that we are maturing spiritually when we are moved more by the cross of Christ than by the consequences of our crime. We know that we are joyfully maturing when our focus is on doxology that is basking in the glory of Mount Calvary instead of being burdened by a debilitating worry inspired by Mount Sinai. Having unmasked the sin in our lives, we must take them to the cross of Christ. The way to destroy the power of sin in our lives is to take them to the cross where we can see our Lord Jesus dying a death of condemnation on our behalf, an infinite death that we should have died. We do not have... Well, our Lord did not have to physically be there on the cross to experience the eternity of pain for he is an infinite being and so is his blood. At the cross... We will see the blood, that crimson tide, that infinite stream healing the wounds of our iniquity. At the cross, we will see hope coming alive, melting the clouds of despair that have been perpetually, well, perpetual overcast the skies of our life. At the cross, we will see a Savior so committed to our holiness that he emptied himself to fill us up. At the cross, we will see that our sin is an insult to the Holy One of Israel, who as our ultimate benefactor has been rewarded with our spit and profanity. At the cross, we will see that we are free in Christ and no longer have to hate ourselves. We can just hate our sin. Isaac Watts wrote, was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. <laughs> Later on, Ralph Hudson added a sweet refrain to those satisfying verses. He said, at the cross, <laughs> at the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I'm happy all the day. I cannot speak for anyone here, but I'm happy because of the work of my Lord. Yes, I'm happy. I'm happy to know that my whole account was settled long ago. 
I'm happy to know that my burden was lifted at Calvary. I'm happy to know that I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm happy to know that Christ ever lives to make intercession for me. I'm happy to know that my sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. I'm happy to know that Jesus has prepared a place for a people whom he has prepared. I'm happy to know that my Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm happy to know that Jesus lived the life for me that I should have lived and that Jesus died the death for me that I should have died. I know, I know I'm not the only one who is happy about the personal work of Christ. Our Lord is truly worthy to be praised. He has broken the shackles of sin with his perfect righteousness and atoning death. He has removed the sting of death. He has utterly defeated the power of hell. Thank God for his sanctifying grace. And by that grace, we can correctly label our melody and we can conspicuously lean on our Savior. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we worry because we forget your wisdom. We're resentful because we forget your mercy. We're covetous because we forget your beauty. We sin because we forget your holiness. We fear because we forget your sovereignty. You always remember us. Help us to remember you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.